as we begin 2013, we will dive into a new study uh, during this new year. We will begin uh, to study, and uh, as, as I share with you what we will be studying, all the women will be like, yay, and all the men will be like, another book about women? We're going to be studying the book of Esther uh, over the next several weeks, and, and so uh, it's interesting, though, as we begin our study, I feel like I'm in a drone. As we begin our study of the book of Esther, we're not going to be reading from the book of Esther. We're going to be reading from the book of Exodus because uh, we have to set the stage. We have to, to, to understand where we are, how we got to where we are, so that we can begin uh, to rightly divide and rightly understand uh, the context of the book of Esther. So if you have your Bibles this morning, you can open up to the book of Exodus, chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23. We understand that as God is dealing with His covenant people Israel, that He establishes several covenants with His people. The first covenant uh, uh, that, that we see uh, is the Adamic covenant, and then we see the Noah covenant, and then we will see uh, the Abrahamic covenant, uh, which is a unilateral covenant where God says, I will be your God and you will be my people regardless of what happens. And this Covenant is ultimately fulfilled in the person of Christ, but one of the more covenants that uh, one of the covenants that we're more familiar with is the Mosaic covenant. This is the covenant where God said, "If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, then I will send curses upon you, or I will I will raise up for you uh, your enemies against you." And so this is this is really the covenant that leads us into the book of Esther. So if you have your Bibles, Exodus chapter twenty three, we're going to begin reading in verse twenty two. It says, but if you will truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. You shall not worship their gods nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly overthrow them. And break their sacred pillars into pieces. But you shall serve the Lord your God. And he will bless your bread and your water. And he will remove sickness from your midst. And there shall be no miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror ahead of you. And throw into confusion all the people among among you. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets ahead of you that they may drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites before you. I will not drive them out before you in a single year that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out before you, little by little, until you come, until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. And I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines from the wilderness to the river Euphrates. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you will drive them out from before you. You shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. They shall not live in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Let's pray. 
Father, we understand that there is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. Lord, as we live and work in a world that is entrenched with covetousness, greed, sinfulness, Lord, may we see your call as Christians to be set apart, to be a city set upon a hill, to be salt and light to a dying place. Lord, may you use us as instruments of grace and mercy. Lord, may we heed the warning and the admonition from your word to be you set apart, to be you holy. And Lord, as we begin to study the book of Esther, may we see your providence, your sovereignty, your grace and your mercy. But, O oh Lord, may we see Jesus high and lifted up as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's in Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen. Esther is one of the few books in the Bible that is considered a post-exilic book. Uh, whenever we say post-exilic, this means after the exile. Uh, what we see, Israel through its history, uh, God, God has told Israel, He said, I will be your God, you'll be my people if you'll obey me. I will bless you if you disobey me, then I will allow your enemies to, to be used against you. In fact, we see all throughout the Old Testament, especially looking at the kings and the chronicles and, and the, the life of Israel from, from David... Uh, through the divided kingdom and even through the exile period, we see that, that God tells Israel, flee from idolatry. Do not give yourself to worshiping false gods. Do not worship the, God of, of the gods of the Canaanites, or else I will raise up your enemies against you. And Israel continued to, to suffer uh, the plight of idolatry. They continued to give themselves over to idolatry. And God says, I'm telling you, don't do this. Quit doing this, quit, quit serving other gods, quit, quit playing the harlot, quit giving yourselves to, to, to the gods of your, of your neighbors. If you do, I'm going to raise up your enemies. And so, so what we would see, and, and even as far back as the period of the judges, we would see Israel would, would give themselves over to false gods. And then God would, would raise up their enemies against them, whether it be the Midianites or the Canaanites or the Moabites. God would raise up their enemies against them, and then they would say, Oh, we're sorry. We didn't really mean that. Will you, will, will you please deliver us? Will you, will you please free us from the oppression of the Midianites or of the Moabites or the Ammonites? And then God would raise up a judge. He would raise up Ehud, or he would raise up Deborah and Barak, or he would raise up Shamgar. He would raise up these, these judges to deliver Israel from their oppression. And then Israel would say, thanks God, I appreciate that, and we're going to go back to doing exactly what we want to do. Because sin is in the heart of man. And so God, God continued to warn Israel, turn from your idolatry, turn from your evil ways. Until ultimately, God raised up the Assyrians to completely destroy the northern kingdom. 
then God raised up the Babylonians to completely destroy the southern kingdom. And Israel was in exile. They no longer had a place that they could call their home. And it's interesting that God is the one who raises up the Assyrians. God is the one who raises up the Babylonians as a means of discipline for the people of Israel. Now, all the while, all the while God does not abandon Israel. God does not not cease to be their God. But God raises up these enemies against Israel. It's interesting that after the exile, after the Assyrians come in and destroy the northern kingdoms and send Israel into exile, after the Babylonians come in and destroy Judah and send them into exile, Israel never again struggles with the sin of idolatry. Ever. For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, God says, if you do this, I'm going to send discipline. I'm going to send the enemies. They're going to destroy you. And it's almost as if a, a, a young child is, is calling the bluff of a parent. You're not really going to take my cell phone away. You're not really going to take my car keys away. And then all of a sudden, God raises up the Assyrians and God raises up the Babylonians and Israel realizes, wait a second. God meant what He said whenever He said, Obey me. Worship only me. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And God raises up the Assyrians and God raises up the Babylonians and sends Israel into exile. And this is the context for the book of Ex- I'm sorry, for the book of Esther. Chronologically, Esther falls into the post-exile time in Israel's history. Israel is no longer struggling with the issue of idolatry. They've been fixed of that problem. They have been cured of their of their struggle with idolatry. Yet they're suffering under oppression of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and now the Persians. This happens between the first return of the Jews under Zerubbabel and the second return of the Jews under Ezra. After Israel is exiled, God continues to maintain a remnant. He continues to maintain a people who love Him, who, who honor Him, who serve Him. And yet, they are, they are in exile. They are strangers in a land that is not theirs. And yet, God, by His great grace and by His great mercy, allows there to be favor upon these Israelites. And, and we know through the story of Nehemiah, we know through the story of Ezra, that, that there is a remnant that returns back to Jerusalem. And rebuilds the walls of the city. And rebuilds the temple. And again establishes a people in Israel. Although Israel is not established as a nation until 1948. And so what we'll see is Esther takes place in between the first return of Israel, the first return of the Jews to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel, and the second return of Israel uh, to, of the Jews to Israel under Ezra. The reign of Ahasuerus follows the reign of King Darius. Many of us are familiar with King Darius. We know this is the king who was the king whenever Daniel uh, was, uh, whenever the story of Daniel takes place. We know the story of Daniel and we know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace and Daniel and the lion's den. And, and 
the king, uh, the king Xerxes, who, which is the Greek name for the king Ahasuerus, uh, which is the Hebrew name, this is the king while Esther is going on, and he immediately succeeds Darius. So, so we all understand where we are in the history of, of Israel, right? You have Darius is no longer the king. Uh, Ahasuerus becomes the king. Xerxes, same guy, Ahasuerus and Xerxes. So, so whenever I say Ahasuerus or whenever I say Xerxes, you understand, same guy. And so he is now the king. And we have Darius is no longer the king. The Persians have come into power. Xerxes is now the king. Uh, Israel is in exile. They are experiencing the consequences of their sin. God has begun to move Israel back to Jerusalem. And this is where we pick up the story. There are only three passages in the Old Testament that take place chronologically after the book of Esther. The last few chapters of the book of Ezra, Ezra 7 through 10, the book of Nehemiah, and the book of Malachi. Those are the only books that take place after the book of Esther. So we are, we are very close to the intertestamental period in Israel's history where God goes silent. And Israel will suffer for 400 years of silence until God raises up a prophet. Of one crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. Now, as we get into the book of Esther, there's a couple of things that I want us to pick up on. One of the most interesting, unique aspects of the book of Esther is the absence of God. In fact, nowhere in the book of Esther do we see God mentioned. We don't see God mentioned. We don't see a, a religious institution necessarily mentioned, a, 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 a organization of the church or of, of, of the people of God. The absence of God is impossible to overlook. Now, it's important that as we begin to study the book of Esther, that the absence of God does not mean the absence of God. God is omnipresent. There is nowhere, no place, no time that we can ever go where we will ever be outside of the presence of God. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere at all times, at all places. That is an aspect of His essential nature. That He is everywhere. He is in this place with us today. Amen? There is not a place that you can go where you are outside of the presence of God. He is at home with you. He is at work with you. He is at the grocery store with you. God in His great grace and in His great mercy, is omnipresent. God is even present in the deepest, darkest recesses of the torment of hell. God is everywhere. You say, how is God present in hell? Because God in His judgment and His wrath against sin is poured out against the ungodly and against the unrighteousness for whom hell was created for Satan and his demons. And in the judgment of God and in the wrath of God, His presence is there in hell. And in the glory of God in heaven, His presence is there. And in His, His, His 
common grace that is poured out upon all of us, His presence is here. His presence is is everywhere. There is nowhere where God is not present. So when I say that God is absent in the book of Esther, I am not speaking of the absence of His presence because there is nowhere where God is absent. But when I speak about the absence of God, I'm speaking about the author's omission of God. The author purposefully, I believe, intentionally omits God from the book of Esther. Why? As you look at the circumstances and the setting of Esther, Esther falls in that post-exilic period in Israel's history. What does Israel very tangibly and very, very palpably experience? They're experiencing an absence of of the blessings of the Lord because of the consequences of their sin. And so as the author purposefully omits the name of God from the writings of the book of Esther, it is a reminder to to the reader that Israel is experiencing the consequences of sin. They are experiencing the discipline of the Lord because of their idolatry, because of their immorality. His presence or His name is purposefully hidden. But let us never remember. Go to Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 23. Jeremiah prophesies during this post-exilic time in Israel's history. And as Jeremiah is prophesying in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 23, as Israel is suffering under the oppression of the Persians and of the Babylonians and under the Assyrians, Jeremiah writes in chapter 23, verse 23, he says, I am a God who is near, declares the Lord, not far off. Can a man hide himself in hiding places so that I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? God says, I am near to you, even though it appears that I am far off. Even though you are in the depth of despair, even though God, in your mind, has been silent, you have suffered under the oppression of the Babylonians and the Assyrians and now the Persians, and and you're crying out for grace and mercy, and you're saying, God, where are you? Jeremiah says, God is not far off during this time. And so, while the author purposefully hides God's name from the book of Esther, God tells us that He is not far off. How many of us have been in a time in our life whenever we look around and we say, God, are you here? How many times have you been, been laying in your bed and, and, and crying out to the Lord and it appears that, that your prayers are getting no higher than the ceiling? That they're bouncing off the ceiling and they're, they're falling right down in your face and, and you're just crying out to the Lord and it appears that God is far off. It appears that you've been forgotten. I imagine during the 13 years between the birth of Ishmael and the birth of Isaac, that as Abram and Sarah cried out to God to forgive them of their sin, to forgive them of their selfishness, to forgive them of their arrogance, that they were crying out to God. And, and, and I imagine 12 years and 11 months, they were saying, where's God? 
Has he abandoned us? Has he forgotten us? I imagine after generation after generation of the Israelites suffered under the oppression of the Egyptians. They said, where is God? Has he forsaken us? One thing that is that is quite encouraging through Scripture is that God has never forsaken His people. Ever. Ever. There has never been a time in the history of mankind where God has forsaken His people. Ever. And so, during the story of Esther, it may appear that God is hidden. It may appear that God is not absent. I'm sorry, that God is not present, that God is absent. It may appear that Israel is left to its own devices. Make no mistake about it, it is God who is orchestrating the actions and the situations of Mordecai. It is God who is establishing the, the means for Esther to become queen. It is God who is raising her up for such a time as this. It is God who is actively working in and through all the circumstances in Esther's life. What is also very prevalent in the book of Esther is the action of both Mordecai and Esther. All throughout the Old Testament, especially when, we look, when we're looking at uh, the, the history of, of the law and the exodus of Israel and the conquest of the promised land, what we see highlighted is the action of God and a minimization of the action of man. We see God, to, God, telling, Jer- uh, God telling Joshua, he says, Joshua, this is what I want you to do. I want you to march around the city and blow your horns. I'm going to take care of the rest. The action of God is maximized and the action of man is minimized. We see God telling Gideon, Gideon, I want you to send everybody home except 300 people. Then I want you to surround 120,000 people with some torches, some jars, and some trumpets. You ready? Here we go. You're going to blow your, you're going to blow your trumpets, you're going to smash your jars, and I'm going to take care of the rest. All throughout the history of Israel, we see the action of God maximized and the action of man minimized. God says, I will be your God. You'll be my people. You do what I say and I'll take care of it. But what's interesting is we get to the book of Esther. And what do we see? We see the action of man. There's, a, there's a, an emphasis on the action of Mordecai. That Mordecai was... was was very involved, that, 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 that he was involved in the political process. He was involved uh, with, with Haman. There was a conspiracy, and, there was, and then there was this queen, and she, 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 she got kicked out of office, and then Esther becomes queen, and then Esther is used in Mordecai, and there's, there's, there's an emphasis on the action of the characters. And there is no mention of the action of God. Now, does that mean that God is not acting? Absolutely not. Does it mean that that, that God is not present there in the book of Esther? Absolutely not. But what it tells us is that while God caused 
While, while God is completely sovereign and while God causes all things, in Romans chapter 8, 28, it tells us that God causes all things to work together for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, that God is completely sovereign and that there's not a drop of rain that falls to the ground, there's not a leaf that falls off the tree without God's foreordination, we understand that there is an importance, that there is a priority for man. That we don't live in a fatalistic society. We can't just sit on our pews and sit on our blessed assurance and say, hey, what's going to happen is going to happen. They're going to get saved. They're going to get saved. Therefore, I'm just going to sit on my blessed assurance. No. The scripture says that we as Christians are called to be salt and light. That we're called to sow the gospel seed and to trust God to do the work. Go with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 is a very interesting chapter. It starts out saying that we're, by nature, children of wrath. And then by the very grace of God, we've been saved. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Ephesians chapter 2, one of the more familiar passages in the book of Ephesians. Verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourself, that it is a 